Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Forum's Matzav podcast. I'm Eli Koaz, Communications and Digital Director at IPF. And I'm Noah Schusterman, the Communications and Research Fellow. We're happy to host again Grant Romney, uh, one of the authors of the phenomenal book The Last Palestinian, The Rise and Reign of Mahmoud Abbas. We want to dedicate this podcast to the future of Palestinian leadership and the struggle over Abbas's succession. Grant, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Abbas has officially been leading the PA since 2005 when he won the Palestinian presidential elections. Was he the natural candidate to replace um, Arafat, and how was his election um, received in the Palestinian street and also in the international community? Yeah, I think it was a two-man race. Um, Arafat passed away on November 11, 2004, and the leaders of Fatah and the PLO huddled that night and basically were deliberating between two different people. It was in one corner Mahmoud Abbas, who had been prime minister and resigned briefly the year before, and Ahmed Korea, or Abu Allah, who had replaced him as prime minister. Now, both of these two officials were largely seen as tier two leaders in the Palestinian leadership. They were about, they were Arafat's chief deputies at Camp David, at previous negotiations. They were his go-to guys. And so the debate was basically which one do which which one of these two guys do we go with? And Abbas distinguished himself primarily because he had resigned in protest from Arafat. He had sort of stood up to the old man a year before. And this is 2004, and by and large, most of the Palestinian leadership understand that the Intifada has failed, that it's backfired on them. And the calculation was, who do we pick that can be good with the Americans, good with the Israelis, and good with the international community to kind of right this ship, get us into smoother waters, smoother sailing, and um, and maybe take us out of this this kind of awful situation that we found ourselves in. And so I think Abbas was, in a sense, the natural pick because he was he was best positioned. Now, according to basic law, once, once the president passes away or the seat is vacant, elections happen 60 days later. And so he was, he became the chairman of the PLO and then Fatah's nominee for president of the Palestinian Authority. And he campaigned and he won 69% of the vote to the nearest competitor was Mustafa Barghouti, the physician and political independent who garnered 18 to 19% of the vote. Uh, but it was a pretty, it was a pretty comfortable win for him. And and um, that was the last presidential election. So let's move to today. Abbas is 82. His health is questionable. Um, he s- smokes, uh, I think, two packs a day. You should know this. You wrote the... Yeah. <laughs> smokes the, a lot. Smokes a lot. Um, he could live another five, ten years, but, I mean, a successor, that's, that's the talk in the street right now. People are positioning themselves. Um, who do you think has the best chance? Yeah, well, um, I I think um, a, a way to think of this is, in a sense, personalities, but also institutions. Um, and so the scenario is murky, basically. It, according to basic law, once the seat is vacant, elections happen within 60 days. Power goes to the Speaker of the PLC, the PA's parliament, for 60 days while elections are held. As we know, since 2006, that person is Aziz Dwake, a member of Hamas, uh, and the parliament's been defunct since anyways. And so 
there's there's not a lot to suggest that power would would will, that they'd willingly cede power to Hamas for sixty days, nor that Hamas would give up power after sixty days. And so, to mitigate that, Abbas last year created a constitutional court, a nine-member, hand-picked, all Fatah guys court that basically has argued that they act as the parliamentary body while parliament is defunct. Now, parliament is defunct still because they haven't had elections to reinvigorate parliament, and uh, you know they're not having elections because Abbas doesn't want to have elections. So this is all pretty circular. But the court has taken some flack as well. A lot of uh, a lot of criticism has said that, that basically you can't just create another court that takes precedence over the parliament and over the basic law. Um, and so there's now talk about power going to the PLO Executive Committee. Now the the Palestinian Authority operates with power imbued to it from the PLO, which was largely hollowed out to create the PA, but the PLO is still the vanguard Palestinian institution of of modern nationalism. And so there's an argument for taking it to the PLO. That's all super in the weeds and super murky, and this is where the personalities come into play, because there are those who operate within certain framework that see themselves as having sort of a direct line to the leadership. So, for instance, Saab Erekat is the number two in the PLO's uh, executive committee. No Palestinian wants, I can't say no, but a vast, vast majority of Palestinians do not want Saab Erekat as the next president of the Palestinians. Then you have like Majid Faraj, who is the head of Palestinian security. And so he, and so he controls uh, the, the PA security services. And then, you have, and then you have sort of periphery actors, and you have people that are in varying levels of strength. I, I think key to understanding this is understanding what happens within Fatah. The beating heart of Palestinian nationalism in 2017 is still Fatah. It's still sort of the most powerful apparatus in the West Bank. And we're going to put aside Gaza for a little bit here because um, Hamas throws a wrench into, can throw a wrench into the succession scenario. But if you look at Fatah, who's the most popular figure within the party? It's Marwan Barghouti. He's got, he got the most votes in the last conference for the Central Committee. His wife has the most votes for the Revolutionary Council, Fatah, uh, at its and sort of its core, is 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 a Barkudi uh, um, uh, organization in a sense. They're the most popular. Marwan wins in any conglomeration, any any constellation of votes. Uh, he's the most popular figure. But I think the question that will grapple the Palestinian leadership that they'll, that they'll wrestle with will be. If Abbas were to not wake up tomorrow, do we nominate someone who's in prison to be to be our president? Or do we nominate someone who's sitting in this room? And if that's the case, the situation gets a little interesting. Jabril Raju, the former head of security services in the West Bank, came in number two in Fatah's internal votes in November. Mahmoud al-Alul, former head of the Tanzim, former governor of Nablus, he was just he was just created uh, he, he just became Fatah's first vice president in history in February. Abbas named him vice president, largely I think to sort of dilute some of the power among the aspirants to the throne, and sort of throw in another guy who's respected on the street, marginally popular, and now has the merit of this of this seat as technical number two within the party. And so and that's not even counting people like Mohammed Dahlan, 
who's uh, floated in the UAE and pumps money into Gaza, makes deals with Hamas, and has tried to position himself regionally as um, the statesman emeritus. And so I, I think there are institutions, and then there are personalities. And I think at this point I, I get a little cross-eyed with trying to, uh, with trying to narrow it down. Uh, Grant, you just mentioned Dahlan. Now, Dahlan is the sworn rival of Mahmoud Abbas. He was born in Khan Yunus, which is in Gaza, and his relationship with Hamas is definitely on the up. Which candidate has the best chance to bring Palestinian unity and bring Gaza back into the fold? Maybe if you could start by telling us a bit more about the Dahlan story and then talk about other candidates uh, that may have the ability to do something similar. Sure, Dahan is um, is from Khan Yunus in Gaza, and he is one of the uh, young guard of leaders. And he came up and basically set up the PA security services in Gaza. His counterpart in the West Bank was Jabril Rajoub. Arafat grew quite fond of him. The Americans and the Israelis grew quite fond of him. He was someone they saw as a straight shooter. He was someone who was um, he was pretty straightforward. He played an outsized role at Camp David where he was taking private meetings with senior members of the American delegation, and this was one of the many reasons Camp David failed, because the old guard of Abbas and Ahmed Korea looked at the young guard of Dahlan and uh, Mohammed Rashid as sort of a threat to their position. He is largely viewed as one of the more corrupt officials um, in Palestinian politics. Most Palestinians view him as, as um, pretty, pretty insanely corrupt. He is popular in Gaza, where he's from, and he's popular in the camps um, in the West Bank. He does a lot of the type of outreach um, to sort of foment that support. He has, in in general, um, always seen himself as the natural successor to Abbas. And when the election happened and they lost Gaza in 2007, a year later... Abbas blamed him for it. He was out of Gaza having knee surgery at the time. And so um, for Abbas, it was, it was a, little, a little conspicuous, his absence. And he came back to the West Bank, and within years he was basically exiled. And he's made his home in the Gulf courting regional favor and money and trying to pump that money. And so with regards to Hamas, basically uh, my view is with Fatah and Hamas, if they could have coexisted at some point in history, they, they would have already. They are just ideologically divergent. They, they share just diametrically opposite views on what a Palestinian society looks like, what they want out of negotiations. One side doesn't even want to do negotiations. And, um, you know, when Hamas releases a new political document that disavows its ties to the Muslim Brotherhood and acknowledges that the 1967 borders are position national consensus, it's wrong to read that as, oh, they've moderated, they've evolved. No, it's, 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 it's the same old Hamas trying to adjust to a regional reality. And they're all positioning themselves for, for staying in power, basically. And so, you know, there's no, I don't think there's any scenario I can imagine where both Fatah and Hamas give up their grievances and agree to share the PA. And so why, do, why, why does Dahlan and Marwan in prison announce agreements with Hamas? Uh, Marwan, a couple years ago, announced a, a broad program for 
Palestinian nationalism that included representatives from Islamic Jihad and Hamas in prison. It's to show Palestinians that they can be that figure. If you grabbed, if you if you went to, you know, Birzeit University and asked Palestinians what they care about, they'd say, "I want jobs, and I'd like the two biggest factions in Palestinian society to get along. I want, I want reconciliation." Those are those are those are pretty widespread, universal opinions. Just improve quality of life and end this divide between the two. And so. If you're sitting here and Abbas is in the twilight years of his reign, and if he doesn't wake up tomorrow, and you have an agreement with Hamas, however shaky, like Dahlan does with Hamas right now, you're basically able to turn to the Palestinians and say, look what I'm doing. I'm already working with Hamas. I've already got money into Gaza. I've shown that I can reach across the aisle and work with these guys. Let me be the leader that unites us again. I think that works campaign-wise. I don't think that translates to actual harmony once that person's in power because, again, this is the this is the end of the Abbas era, and alliances are near term, and it's very much enemy of my enemy is my friend time, and once Abbas is gone, all that is basically thrown out the window. So, would it be in Abbas's best interest to choose his own successor, or at least or, endorse, or, or call for elections now when he's still in power, when he yeah. can actually have some sort of influence on, on how everything goes? So the problem with that in Palestinian politics is the moment you announce a successor or an heir apparent, you've cut your power in half. You've, you've basically created another center of gravity for uh, anybody to start cozying up to. And um, I mean, I mean, put yourself in a mid-level bureaucratic position within Ramallah, and Abbas says, "This 50-year-old guy is my successor," and you want to rise up within within the foreign ministry, within within the party, within whatever. You're not going to be trying to impress Abbas anymore. You're going to be trying to impress the people around the new guy. Everyone's going to be wanting meetings with the new guy. Whatever he says is going to be taken as sort of, oh, this is the future here. If Abbas says, I'm open to negotiations, and the new guy says, I want to do popular resistance, what do you think people are going to choose? What do you think people are going to gravitate towards and see as the actual future? And so naming a successor undercuts him a little bit. But that's not necess- but but you know I know I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate with you here. That's not necessarily reason enough to avoid a scenario where you've basically set up the West Bank for for factionalization or chaos. Elections I think would be would be probably the smartest move. He's delayed them since 2009. If the stability of the West Bank was what was what he cared about the most, then announcing elections and announcing he would not compete would lead to the would lead to the most stable situation. Uh, that's just it's it's unfathomable to think of that he would endorse that. I mean, not only does do I think he just generally likes to be in power, um, but he's also concerned about the people around him. The people in his kitchen cabinet, his sons, his advisors, have benefited for years off a pretty corrupt system. And if you announce elections and you don't compete, you have no guarantees that your assets and the people around you are safe. Um, you know, his sons are, are vilified uh, in a lot of corners of Palestinian politics for, for their control over the system and for the outsized role they play in the Palestinian economy. For a guy who's a family man, I don't know if he would ever really opt for the 
uncertainty that elections would mean for him. So in a way, he's um, preferring his own status over his legacy. That's, I mean, that, that's, that's basically all we're left to, to, to glean from this. I mean, there's, there's, there's not a ton of other explanations for why you would create a situation where multiple parties have varying levels of legitimate claims and grievances that basically is set up for a factionalized power vacuum to emerge when you go, apart from self-interest. It certainly, it certainly doesn't look like a national interest. It certainly doesn't look like an interest for what's best for, um, for the stability of the West Bank, but I think he's probably the only one who knows the answer to that question. And how about the Israeli perspective? Um, who do you think is would be the best Palestinian leader, the most fit Palestinian leader to lead the Palestinians toward a two-state solution and to conduct a serious uh, peace process with Israel? Um, this doesn't necessarily apply to Netanyahu, who it's questionable whether he supports a two-state solution or not. Just in general, in terms of who would fit Israel the best? Well, I, I, much like I tried to not speak for, for Palestinians, I, I tried to not speak for, for Israel or, or Israelis when it comes to this. I, I, I think it depends on what you want. Uh, if you want stability in the West Bank, then security coordination is key. And so the answer is pretty clear cut. Anybody who maintains security coordination and the likeliest person to do that is Majid Faraj. Uh, Jabril, I think to an extent, would because he's got that long history. Certainly, Dahlan, if he came back, he's a security services guy. He's got those existing relationships. Um, if you want someone who is going to go the distance with you on uh, negotiations, to my mind, you have to have an answer for Gaza. And you have to have a Palestinian leader with a vision and uh, a conviction that either they're going to reunify and reassert PA control in Gaza or call for national elections and, and call Hamas's bluff or, um, or use their newfound mandate as presidential leader to say that I have, I have legitimacy over Gaza in a way that Hamas doesn't. But basically, you are going to need a leader with some serious gusto and some serious um, conviction and and I don't, I don't know who that is. I, I guess I don't really see a person like that. I think a lot of people try to ascribe that type of charisma and um, and dynamism to, to Marwan Barghouti in prison. But frankly, I, 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 I'm not sure I see it. I think his stock has risen primarily because he comes from Fanta's leadership and primarily because he's serving five life sentences in an Israeli prison. And that will always hold a certain stature within Palestinian society. If he was out of prison, on the street, campaigning, um, saying controversial things, then he'd be just another Fatah guy that would be getting targeted and getting criticized and whatnot. So I don't know if I, don't know if I see a leader that's the best for the two-state solution, but I think, I think the history of the Middle East is that, is that leaders surprise you at times and, and people surprise you even more. And so I don't, I don't know what it looks like afterwards, but I think if, if Israel's looking at the West Bank as uh, uh, through the lens of security, then their, their dog in the race is going to be someone like Majid or Jabril. Mm-hmm. When time comes and uh, Abbas is replaced eventually, 
what will be his legacy? Do you think he will join Arafat in the Hall of Fame of Palestinian nationalism, or will he be sidelined? Well, I, I mean, I, I think his picture will be with, with um, you know, with with Arafat. I mean, but 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 everyone sort of gets a picture. I mean, in, in the Makata in, in in November, I was seeing pictures of Ahmed Shukeri, um, who was the founder of the PLO, who was um, a Palestinian who had served as, I think, the Saudi's ambassador to the UN, and had just kind of been this guy involved with the Arab League in the UN and was close to Gamal Abdel Nasser and, you know, basically is, is largely considered, I guess, kind of, you know, basically a failure um, in terms from a Palestinian perspective. Arafat basically took over the PLO and, and you know, demoted him. But yet he's sort of exalted in, you know, in the Magadha. It's like, of course, yeah, you know, he's one of the founders. Um, you know, and, and history has a way of, of shining, I think, um, a, a, a nicer, brighter light on leaders. I think. I think Abbas's legacy. The Palestinians negotiate with the Israelis along the two-state solution because of Mahmoud Abbas, largely because of 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 what he's done in his career, the positions he advocated for, and it wasn't him alone. At times, he's just the one that emerged in 1983. Assam Sartawi is killed by other by rival Palestinian groups for meeting with Israelis and advocating for uh, recognition. He survives that, and he comes through, and he signs the Declaration of Principles, and he's, you know, the fa- the father of Oslo. And Oslo, you know, Palestinians could say it's a failed process, but you know, leaders of Fatah right now are committed to. Abu Mazen's school of thought, and they might not be when he goes, and that would be another addition to his legacy. But his legacy is is they accepted the two state solution in large part due to his his maneuvers, and they don't have a state in large part to his decisions, and so it's a mixed legacy. It's a tra- I mean the 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 arc of our book is he's a tragic figure. He campaigns and he rises within the organization, advocating for. A certain viewpoint for a two-state solution. He makes a deal in a vacuum and is chastised for it when it comes to light in the 90s with Yossi Balin. He's a guy who had all the skills to negotiate, but none of the skills to lead his people to accept those negotiations or deliver on those uh, negotiations. And he can't, all of his leader, all of his attributes as, as a negotiator don't transfer to leadership. And so he, he cannot stop what happens within his party in 2006, and he cannot stop the Civil War once that happens. And everything since then has been about self-preservation, and that's, that's the tragedy and the lesson here, I think, for policymakers from the U.S., from Israel, from, from, from everywhere, is that you, we're going to need leaders on both sides with the willingness to sign an agreement and the ability to deliver on it. And if Arafat was a guy who could have delivered anything to the Palestinians, but ultimately couldn't bring himself to be the guy, Abbas was the opposite. At, at a certain point in his life, he wanted to be the guy to sign a deal. Once he came into power, he lost the ability to do so. And that's ultimately his legacy. Okay. Thank you very much, Grant. Well, we appreciate We appreciate it. Um, his book is The Last Palestinian, co-authored with Amir Tibon. Thank you to our followers for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and engage with IPF online um, on our Facebook page, on our Twitter, and on Matsav blog, www.matsavblog.com. Thanks very much. We'll see you next week.